Support for this podcast is provided by That Cast Creative. Brand your business and connect with your audience by creating a custom podcast. Learn more at thatcast.com. Hey everyone, you're listening to the PDX Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Bruden. On today's episode, we have Mike Rogaway, business reporter for The Oregonian. Hey, Dan. Welcome back, Mike. Thanks. Glad to be back. So this is the third time I have you on. I think we must be on like every other year cycle. Since yeah. It's been about yeah, two yeah. years. It's always good just, you know, really get an update what's going on. So I'm eager to hear, you know, in your coverage of, um, you know, the big stories the past year, but also what's coming down the pike. We have so much stuff in the business world here in Portland. So, you know, a little context, you and I used to work here in the Oregonian. Uh, I was on the marketing side, of course. But again, you've been uh, here at Oregonian for how long now? Uh, almost 15 years exactly. Wow. And before that, you were at the Columbian, is At right? the Columbian over in Vancouver. And kind of your coverage is all things business, but you have also really a lot of your reporting now is with startups and just what's going on in the tech world here too, right? Yeah. Uh, technology has been for many years uh, and still is the biggest factor in Oregon's economy. And it continues to be the most dynamic and interesting thing, I think. So I, I do try to focus on that. But other things come through, like comets, that I... <laughs> I got to take. I got to take. Uh, well, let's just kind of start a little bit, um, kind of the biggest business stories here. Uh, I, I'm eager to get in the startups, because uh, there's a couple just financing rounds. Do you have any couple things you want to just kind of kick well, off? Well, maybe and- I, I just start, we, we, then you asked about an economic overview. Yeah. And people are, you know, I, I think we're... Wondering, you know, are, are we near the end of this expansion, are the, are the, this these good times? And economists look at it, and I think they feel pretty good about where Oregon's economy is right now. Uh, Portland State's uh, Economic Research Service uh, did a report last month, I think, a month and a half ago. They estimated the chance of a recession under 50% over mm-hmm. the next couple years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was through the end of 2021. If we continue to add jobs through September, this will be the longest economic expansion in Oregon's history. Wow. So the economy remains really quite robust. The state just put out its latest econ- unemployment report. Unemployment remains at 4.1%, which is about the lowest it's ever been. About half of the people on the unemployment rolls are either new to the job market or are the first they're back after a long time away. So mm-hmm. the people who are don't have jobs right now, who are unemployed by the government's definition, are primarily people who have just started looking for a job for whatever reason. Either they fell out of the job market, they're new to it, something like that. So it's a sign that things remain very healthy. We're adding many fewer jobs than we had been, say, two or three years ago. But that's just a reflection of the economic recovery maturing, the economic growth maturing. I think people feel pretty confident about it. Tech, it's the biggest biggest piece of Oregon's economy, biggest single piece. Uh, it's continuing to grow really rapidly again. Uh, we had maybe two or three kind of down years when it wasn't performing as well as the state as a whole. The last year and a half, that's changed. We're, we're growing again. And as far as like um, when we do enter a little bit of a downturn, do you think Portland's insulated from it, or or do we feel it more? I always we talked about this last time. Yeah, we've always uh, been a high beta uh, economy to use a finance term that things get better outsized here and get worse outsized here. You know when 
when the nation's economy catches a cold, we get the flu. Mm -hmm. That was true last time out with the Great Recession. You know, we weren't the hardest hit in the country, but we were pretty hard hit. I think there's reason to believe that remains the case. Part of it, in my own view, is that we kind of lack anchor tenants. Mm -hmm. If you look at Seattle, you got Boeing, Microsoft, Costco, Starbucks, Amazon. Uh, we could go on and on. Uh, and so those those companies may go up and down, but they rarely go away entirely. So they kind of provide uh, a floor for um, the economic ups and downs. We really don't have a lot of that here. We have Intel and Nike, some of the other companies in the athletic apparel right. market. But all of those are smaller than the footprints that the big companies occupy in Seattle or the Bay Area or Southern California. So I think, and we, we, can, we should talk a little bit more about the outpost economy later, which our tech economy has become even more outpost mm -hmm. dominated. Mm -hmm. But I think there is reason to believe that when things get bad, they probably will get worse here than elsewhere. Mm. I think what we're not seeing both here and nationally is an indication of you know a huge bubble, big run-up in valuations that would indicate some fundamental piece of the economy would fall apart like the housing market did last time. We've had a, a run-up in housing prices, and, but that's kind of leveled off. Uh, my colleague Elliot Noose has written about this, that our incomes couldn't support prices where they were at. So both rents and um, rents where there's more factors involved, but rents and home prices kind of leveled off. So we, yeah, home prices are up, but they're not at bubble valuations. Um, corporate valuations are high, but not obscenely high. So I think there's reason to believe it may be worse when it gets bad here, but yeah. it may not be, uh, you know, it, it may be more like a modest downturn when it comes. Right. It's not going to be 2008. Yeah, of course, it's always predicting the future. You never know. <laughs> but, I'm going to hold you to it, Mike. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get a little tangent here. I was just checking out some new, um, some of the new hotels for some events, and I can't believe how many are those opening here. Do you think that's related to the tied to the business, the outpost economy? I I have point? to think that's a major part yeah. of it. Uh, Elliot, who I just mentioned, and I have talked a lot about that. Neither one of us have written directly at it. It it is a little bit mysterious to me that we have so much construction. And this is in the you know the the Airbnb economy that there are people do have options. This is not the only place for right. tourists to go, but I think it's reflecting the business climate and the outpost economy. Uh, you know, we have a lot of people coming from elsewhere for Intel, Nike, Adidas, mm -hmm. um, and other kinds of of companies. And I, I think that has to be the explanation. Mm. Yeah, I'm really surprised. If can't keep up with all the hotel. I'm like, uh, and I asked this one I just went to, I asked, what's the percentage of, of you know, business travelers? And they said about 30%, which is a little low, I thought, but interesting. Yeah. It, it you know, I, I, somebody asked oh, a few weeks ago after the latest uh, mini riot downtown, mm -hmm. whether or not the signs of civil unrest uh, seem to be impacting tourism to, to Portland and everyone's conclusion was no. They There are certainly people who are turned off by that and don't come, but they're probably not the people who would come to Portland anyway. Right. Portland people come because it has a bohemian reputation. It's supposed to be kind of offbeat. Mm -hmm. And if two or three blocks downtown a couple times a summer are, are pretty ugly, well, 
You know, that does, it's not turning these folks off. Yeah, that is interesting. I didn't really think about that. And that's, of course, we, we always make the news for interesting reasons. Our city, but yeah, <laughs> uh, let's talk about startups a little bit. Uh, I know we have a unicorn in the midst. Is that right? Well, yeah, there, there's a, a few companies out there uh, that are, are possibilities, uh, depending on, on how you count it. You know, last year was the best year for we'll say early stage tech companies, I don't know, mid-stage in terms of funding since the dot-com year. What do we have, $600 million or something in funding? Mm -hmm. That wasn't venture capital for the most part, or if it was, it was follow-on rounds or private. It was mostly private equity. These weren't startups in the sense that they just were founded one or two years ago. These were more mature companies, more like a decade old. Their puppet, Urban Airship, Vicasa. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, getting these follow-on rounds. Uh, You know, we're clearly at the point where some of these companies have matured and they're looking at exits. We had one last year for the first time, first tech uh, IPO in this market since 2004 was Enlight, uh, Clark County laser manufacturer. Well, you mentioned Vecasa. Uh, they are clear. They clearly have big ambitions. Their business model is essentially providing marketing online, you know, rental service for vacation rental properties for the property owners, and then they maintain and manage mm-hmm. the properties. Uh, they have been acquiring and acquiring and acquiring, you know, from Canaby from Cannon Beach to Kennebunkport, mm-hmm. uh, tons of properties, tons uh, of management services in each of these small communities, and then using that local knowledge and market position to. Um, maximize the rents mm-hmm. they get a lot of my money yeah uh, but they just their round was the latest round was about right over 100 million is that right yeah yeah and so they're you know just today they named a new cfo who came from chewy uh the the pet company that uh pet supply company that right. sold for what three billion mm-hmm. last year mm-hmm. to pet smart mm-hmm. so they are Hmm. They're clearly positioning themselves for that kind of thing, or perhaps an IPO. Hmm. Hmm. Um, you know, we'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see. And the other one would be uh, up in Vancouver, Discover Org. Yeah, right? Discover Org. Uh, Vancouver is really interesting. I, I think this is true in general, that uh, in the aftermath of the dot-com era, we had, as we moved away from the our old hardware economy, which is still the biggest part of our tech economy, but... Mm-hmm. Um, more toward internet services and startups. Things migrated quickly to downtown Portland. But now it's it's back in the suburbs. Uh, companies like Invoice Pay had success out in Beaverton. Uh, they sold, right? They sold. Uh, as part of a deal, the buyer didn't say how much they paid, but they said, we made two acquisitions for $255 million total. One was Envoice Pay, and one was some tiny company in England. So they're <laughs> trying not to say exactly how much it was, but it was probably a large amount. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have Discover Org, which is essentially, you know, market intelligence for the for the boiler room. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I mean that, that, that's literally what it is. Yeah. Uh, if you've seen Glengarry Glen Ross, yeah. you want the, those good leads, yep. and that's what they're giving you. They're they've got uh, databases of who works at each economy, and then you hand it to your salespeople, and they can make their calls and emails, and right. and and ideally, you know, they have the good leads. Mm-hmm. Also, over in Vancouver. Uh, this eighty million dollar round just now, I believe, uh, Realware, mm-hmm. which, if you will call Google Glass, notorious flop. Mm-hmm. Uh, Realware's technology is essentially analogous. It's smart glasses, but they're strapped into a hard hat. 
And the idea is that you're looking through those. You can call up a manual. You can call up instructions. Or you can call up somebody who may know what you don't. So if you're working on an oil rig, a factory floor, something like that, call a supervisor or some specialist and say, man, I have never seen this before. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Say, oh, yeah, I did see that once, and here's here's the deal, or let me look that up for you. Or you can look it up yourself and say, okay, here's an unusual problem. We can fix it. It was was four industrial companies uh, that invested in Realware. It's uh, strategic investment. So these companies see a real opportunity there. Yeah, that's a pretty big round, and it was, uh, I saw that, and I was a little surprised. But let's talk about uh, Cura, Yeah, they sold, right? Yeah, uh, it, they're in the process of selling. Okay. Uh, it was originally a $950 million deal. Uh, Cura Cannabis, uh, it was Oregon's biggest legalized marijuana yeah. company. It emerged from this real estate scam, um, this fellow who started this investment. Yeah, that's right. They have some of that history, right? They have yeah. a really tortured history. Uh, so it started as this real estate scam. This fellow diverted money from essentially a house flipping investment okay. scheme for Oregon retirees and poured it into uh, marijuana startups. At the, you know, it, it was not what the investors thought they were investing in. Ultimately, they settled. Okay. After that, this fellow, Nitin Khanna, uh, was a well-known Portland tech investor, then had to retreat after some rape allegations against him. Mm. He got involved with the company, uh, and it uh, grew rapidly under the Select Oil brand, mm. um, uh, providing well um, oils for vaping and, mm-hmm. and things like that. They grew rather large. They claimed $117 million in revenue last year. And then mm-hmm. this Massachusetts company, backed by a Russian billionaire and an, an American investment mm-hmm. banker who made his fortune in Russia, uh, um, helping com- privatize the old Soviet state-owned industries, they have this company, Kiraleaf. Uh, so they paid $950 million for it. Mm. Uh, that deal hasn't closed yet, but there's no reason that I've seen to believe that it won't sometime later this What's year. What's the kind of strategy behind that as far as w- what do you think uh, is going to happen as far as like public markets of cannabis? and uh, You know, it's totally in flux. Uh, I think what we're seeing is incremental at this point. Uh, uh, movement among the states, you know, one after another, yeah. legalizing medical or recreational marijuana. We have 10 recreational marijuana states right now. Illinois will be the 11th uh, next year. That's a big one because it's mm-hmm. a big state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're moving in that direction. What's happening with this consolidation is that people are trying to get out ahead, getting licenses, betting that the market, because it's not federally legal, and it is strictly regulated in states, that these licenses will be very valuable and will give them market position, that they'll be able to build an early brand. Cureleaf is going to adopt you know, the Portland brand, Select, mm-hmm. as their recreational mm-hmm. marijuana brand. Uh, and then they just announced a $875 million deal for a Chicago company mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're trying to snap up licenses, uh, trying to get brand position and trying not to get the scandals yeah. uh, to, uh, all over them in the process. We'll see. I mean, obviously here in Oregon, they, the LSSC has restricted the growing licenses, right? Yeah. Because there's been a flux. So. Yeah. And so we had, you know, I wrote last year about what happened, you know, prices cratered. It was a really bad situation. But economists will tell you, you know, supply and demand meet on the supply and demand curve is, mm-hmm. 
as prices fell, demand increased because it was really cheap. Mm -hmm. And so sales have really soared. Mm -hmm. Well, those are some of the, I guess, quote unquote, uh, bigger named early stage companies. Are there any interesting startups are being incubated here or, or in general kind of the venture capital there's some great accelerators here taking a little different model you know it, investing. It's, it, it's interesting what's happened let's look at the portland incubator experiment for example yeah. uh rick tarosi and widen and kennedy started that six, they're having a birthday was it really 10 years ago maybe they're having their 10th anniversary yeah. this this fall you know, at the time, it was sort of a standard, you know, model on Y Combinator and Techstars. It was going to be a, a startup incubator. Right. And we didn't, there were some real successes that came out of that. We had, for example, Cloudability, which just sold earlier yeah. this year. That uh, passed through the Portland Incubator Experiment. And there were others that, that, that passed through Pi uh, as well. But Pi has shifted its model considerably. Wired and Kennedy backed out. Um, and now they're not focused so much as startups as they are on small business. And I, I think that's a distinction we don't make enough. Mm -hmm. A startup mm -hmm. really wants to be ambitious. It really wants to get really big, really fast. That's the definition of a startup. But you can also be a founder of a small business, something that is just trying to develop a new market that may never be a multi-billion dollar market, but may be a real market. And so Pi is much more focused on reaching a more diverse set of entrepreneurs now and people with uh, perhaps more realistic ambitions. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. Uh, it's hard to judge anyone else's business model from the outside. But they had their showcase last spring, and none of the businesses that presented there you know, had this world-beating business plan. They were all, and maybe there were 10 of them, they were all more like these are underserved markets. They're kind of niches for the most part, but there's a real market opportunity yeah. there. And, you know, that's probably very Portland. You know, we right. don't, with a handful of exceptions over the years, we don't produce big companies. In fact, we, you know, we really haven't even produced a modest-sized company since maybe the 80s. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. so maybe this is the, the right thing we, to be doing. Well, I know uh, you cover Intel a lot. What's going on with Intel? Well, Intel's the story of the year for the Oregon economy, without a doubt, in that they are going ahead with this third phase of D1X. They'll be spending they, – it's sort of curious. They haven't said a lot about it other than to confirm it's happening. And D1X is? It's is the third phase of D1X. It's their major research fab. That's where they develop um, each new generation of microprocessor technology. This is their brain. This is Intel's brain. It's been in Oregon for 20-plus years that this has been their major research center. Uh, so that's, for Oregon's economy, that's the good news. Mm -hmm. There'd be billions of dollars of work, um, thousands of construction jobs, and then something like 1,800 new wow. Intel employees when it's done in two or three years. Um, you know, the bad news for Intel is that they, m they really missed a generation of uh, technology development. It was a major lapse, perhaps the biggest in its history. Intel has always been known for its research and development that they've been out and ahead mm -hmm. uh, with everything new. Uh, but with their 10 nanometer process, they flopped. What Intel will tell you is that they uh, bit off more than they can chew. They, they will use those words. That they tried to do too much, to shrink too much too fast in the processors, and they weren't able to carry it off. 
Now, essentially, what's happened is there are too many defects in mm. each microprocessor in each batch of microprocessors that come off the line. The features are so small that with the existing manufacturing tools, they can't reliably make them. They, mm. They've been working on it forever. They'll have it finally by the end of this year. They say they're absolutely certain of this. Okay, so it's something like four or five years behind schedule. Mm. But uh, after that, they're going to move to a new manufacturing technology called EUV, Extreme Ultraviolet Lithography. Mm. A company called ASML makes that. Uh, these are $100 million production tools. They essentially allow you to pattern smaller features onto these silicon wafers and make ch- chips at smaller sizes than what the existing technology can pull off. Mm-hmm. These tools are huge. You need a 747 to transport them. They're the size of a school bus. Oh. Uh, as I say, they're $100 bucks a piece. Wow. So in order to use them, in order to... to, to use these tools, you need a much bigger factory. And so that's what's going on there. They're building this third phase of D1X. It's much bigger than chip fabs uh, used to be, all to accommodate EUV. Wow. They're building new, they have a, a new fab that's been under construction on and off for like a decade in Arizona that can accommodate EUV. Then they also said they were going to open new fabs in Israel and Ireland. Their sales, for a variety of reasons, the production laps being one of them, are going to be down this year. That's a big disappointment uh, weighing on the company. They've postponed the Israel fab for at least a year, but my understanding is they're going ahead in Ireland. Okay. And what's the employee count right now? Uh, as far as you know. Yeah, (laughs) they're ballpark 20,000. Okay, so still Uh, by far the... Yeah, still by far Oregon's largest corporate employer Mm -hmm. and... Uh, they're only going to get bigger as the new fab opens. Well, let's circle back to the outpost. Um, what are some new outposts here that we might not know about or uh, coming? Uh, I, I think it's... Let, 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 let's take one example, for example. I, I, I think of, of what's representative of what's happening. We had this company, uh, online security company called Twistlock. Mm. And so... They nominally last fall, you know, it's a Silicon Valley startup, but their CEO lives in New York and their other, he's one of their founders, their other founder lives in Israel, but they nominally moved their headquarters to Portland. Uh, and they hired some people who'd come out of Puppet and others from the tech scene. Uh, they were providing an a online security service. It's kind of a niche, but an important niche uh, that they were filling and what they sell for. 300 some million uh is wow. a very young company might have very been small yeah right yeah just yeah. a few dozen employees yeah. here so it's you know an, an enormous return very quick and i think what we're seeing is companies like that are sort of putting out tiny outposts here sometimes calling it their headquarters even though you know yeah. none of their executives work here <laughs> uh-huh. uh but because it's a relatively inexpensive place to uh, to do business, and there is enough engineering skill here to perform certain tasks. You know, you might not put, it might not be right for every company, but for certain companies like Twistlock, uh, you're able to grow really fast, pretty inexpensively yeah. here. And I, I think that's what we're seeing is companies are putting, you know, niches here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of them are startups like that, and some of them are, are 
bigger companies like Amazon. I think, you know, when Sam Blackman sold Elemental Technologies to Amazon, I think he had high hopes that if something like HQ2 ever emerged, that we could be that. It's obviously not going to happen um, that, you know, Amazon has made it clear that they're there isn't going to be no HQ2 after all. It's going yeah. to be sort of scattered around a number of places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Portland will not be one of the big ones on that. But we probably will perform important roles in niches. Uh, Amazon and the Washington Post just came out with some key video tools for uh, the Washington Post content management service uh, uh, called ARC. Okay. Uh, that is developed here by a, what's now AWS Elemental. Of course, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. <laughs> right. So yeah. we, have, we have things like that where Portland has special sauce in certain areas. We're going to continue to have outposts. Mm-hmm. No sign among the startup scene of, of any big companies, you know, to my eye, um, getting established here with a handful of exceptions like Vacasa, like Discover.org, yeah. Uh, perhaps real wear. All those, though, you could see maybe make more sense as part of larger companies uh, mm-hmm. that it probably fits better into somebody else's portfolio. And mm. I think the fact that real wares investors were all manufacturers, they're all strategic okay. investors. Everyone sees that probably as part of somebody else's portfolio. Yeah, well, let's talk. A, you know, I know we're here in Portland. Uh, let's talk a little bit other parts of the state. I grew up in Southern Oregon. I see Dutch Brothers Coffee just got a it's undisclosed kind of private equity money. Yeah. Um, so I mean uh, that's one example, but are there other examples of other? You know, we have. Uh, my my feeling on this is that the the problem Portland has sort of growing scalable companies here. You know, people used to talk about the Portland threshold. We lacked executive talent. We have executives now, but we still don't have a lot of CEOs, not a lot of people who've done it before starting companies here. I think that's writ large in other parts of the state, from Medford to Eugene to Bend, Mm -hmm. that when you have companies emerge there, it's just that much harder to get to any any scale. Yeah. Uh, That said, you know, from a broader economic perspective, by no means is Oregon's economic recovery any longer confined to uh, the Portland metro area. And Josh Lehner has written, a, he's a state economist, has written a lot about this. Job growth has been very strong across the state. Now, mm. some old line industries, which in many communities were the ones supplying living wage jobs, like like timber, and yeah. you know, it, in individual communities, it, they continues to struggle. But on the whole, the employment picture looks pretty good all over the state. We have interesting companies like Agility Robotics down in Corvallis. You don't know them? No, it's, a, do? it's a walking robot. It's a very advanced robot huh. uh, that people talk about, well, maybe it could provide deliveries. Maybe it could provide battlefield. Maybe it fights on the battlefield. Yeah. Maybe it's a courier of some kind. Uh, if you watch the video for it, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, and they just had a deal with Ford of some kind. Huh. Um, people are paying close attention to them. Uh, Laura De, De Carlo. Uh, um, There's a lot of not, stuff going on in Corvallis. Hope, yeah, well, yeah, Laura, Laura yeah. De Carlo is, also came out of the Corvallis 
robotics program, but it's also um, its headquarters are not are in Bend. It's they made a splash last year at CES. They're essentially a robotic sex toy oh, right. uh, for women, yeah. and CES originally rescinded an award that they got. Uh, because oh no, this isn't this isn't what we do here at CES. And people pointed out, wait a minute, there's all sorts of male-oriented sex stuff here, and there's the booth babes, you know, uh, women in skimpy mm-hmm. outfits and things. So just yesterday, um, we're talking on on Wednesday the 17th now, so Tuesday the 16th, uh, CES said actually we're going to have a trial category at CES of you know sex tech. Mm. Uh, because of that experience, and we're going to ban booth babes. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so they're they're trying to move forward from their mistake last yeah. year, and this Bend company, Bend slash Corvallis company, was an impetus for that. Well, let's switch a little bit to kind of legislation. Um, I don't know much about this new like, gross tax, or can you talk about it? And yeah. Obviously, I just... Yeah, you, so yeah. a little bit of history real quick. Everyone in Oregon remembers Measure 97. It was going to be this... $3 billion a year tax um, you know, uh, on the gross receipts of all kinds of businesses. Uh, well, it was a little more complicated than that. It, depending on whether you're an S-Corp or C-Corp, you'd be taxed or not taxed. It was a very difficult bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was no designation on how the state would spend the money. It was on the ballot in 2016 and just got thrashed. Voters wanted no part of it. The legislature came around again. They tried it last year in 2018 and then again this year in 2019. They finally succeeded in 2019 uh, with a much smaller tax. It's going to be more like a billion dollars a year, so roughly a third of the size of the old one. Uh, It has an exemption. It has various kinds of exemptions and discounts that businesses can take uh and the money is is earmarked specifically for education Mm -hmm. half of it to local school districts uh a quarter to roughly to statewide education programs a quarter to early childhood services uh they made changes in the bill it's complicated the business community was uniformly opposed to measure 97 that 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 big tax increase from 2016 in this case it was split nike was out in front, all on board with this. Now, part of that is because the way this Nike doesn't do a lot of sales inside the state, it's going to have a nominal effect on their mm-hmm. business. Manufacturers still don't like it at all. They're concerned in particular that there's going to be this pyramiding effect that every step in their supply chain is going to get taxed on these sales. Mm. Um, there was a push to put that on the ballot just yesterday, Tuesday the 16th, uh, an uh, industry group, Oregon Manufacturers and Commerce, which had formed more or less in opposition to this kind of tax, was they were working to put it on the ballot. They gave up. They gave a n- number of explanations. Uh, they said, oh, the Democrats made it too difficult to repeal on the ballot. Hmm. But it may be that the Dem- Democrats were just smarter about how they positioned this. They got some businesses on board. They exempted others to, to stay neutral. The state's largest Business Association, Oregon Business and Industry, said they cut a deal. They say, we're happy with it, or at least we can live with it. We're keeping our hands off it. Uh, And then they gave it a specific purpose. They said it's going to go to schools, and there are going to be these accountability measures in place to make sure it works uh, properly. 
I think that would be a much harder sell for opponents on that ballot than it was three years ago. Mm. So we'll see. Uh, Oregon has long had the lowest business taxes in the nation. Right. Because we have no sales tax, now we have a tax on sales. It will hit consumers indirectly. There's a cut in the personal income tax to help compensate for that. Okay. Who knows how it will wash out, but it provides something like an 18% boost in state education funding uh, for public schools. Mm-hmm. So that's very significant. Yeah. Well, I have to talk about kind of the state of journalism. Yeah, it's my uh, you know former work, and now you're here. So, you know, since we last talked, it talked. Is it more consolidation, or what's kind of going on? You know, it it, it it's interesting. It, it's it's really in flux. I think we've seen, you know, on the national level, it, it's clear that a subscription based model can work. You know, it's followed essentially what's happened with Netflix and things like that. People will subscribe to quality. And so the Wall Street Journal, which has always been a subscription product online, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they are out and out thriving. The, mm-hmm. the Washington Post has more subscribers now, if you include their digital subscribers, than they've ever had in their history. Mm-hmm. And it's much cheaper to deliver online than it is yeah. to print a paper. So they are, Jeff Bezos' papers, out and out thriving. The New York Times, which is run by former Oregonian reporter Arthur Sulzberger, is having some of the best years in its history People talked about the Trump bump, and it's true that uh, they succeeded in part because people wanted that kind of news in the Trump era. But their growth now is coming from things, you know, specialized, more specialized digital services like cooking and puzzles and mm-hmm. features like that. Uh, and so that's a model that's working. And the, the local picture still remains challenging. You know, I, I think maybe we see you know a, a handful of markets: Minneapolis, Seattle, San Francisco, Houston. Uh, there appears to be uh, people have had success cobbling together subscriptions, uh, grants from foundations, events, things like that. That they're able to support a uh, more robust newsroom in Oregon in the local scene. You've seen what happened in Bend. The Bulletin's parent company went through a bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be sold for $2 million plus. It's mm. sort of a nominal amount. Uh, you know, I think there's a great deal of uncertainty as to what's going to happen in local journalism in Oregon and elsewhere. Here, you know, all indications are things are stable at the moment. We'll see uh, if that's durable through another economic downturn. Um, but that may be some time off. And I don't think I'm giving away any secrets mm. to say that our parent company, uh, Advanced Local, is moving. I know I'm not giving any away secrets. They've talked about it publicly. Uh, is moving toward a quasi-subscription-based model in yeah. its markets that's likely to come here at some point, but we don't have a lot of clarity. on. Is it in some be. other markets already? Yes, it is. It's in Syracuse and Michigan, I believe. Okay. Uh, and you know we'll see. I don't have a clear read on how it's how their particular model is working there. Yeah, and I don't know when it's coming here. I do know they want it to target only a sub a small subset of readers at least initially. Mm-hmm. They don't want to lose the large audience we have now reading our website for free. Well, that being said, there's more people than ever reading you, yeah. you, and yeah. Oregon, your peers here at the Oregonian. Yeah, so. it, it, it's true. Uh, they. 
you know, in terms of our total audience, I won't say it's never been bigger. They showed us a chart at some point. I probably shouldn't talk too much about that because okay. that may be. But let's yeah. just say that our audience now is comparable to what it what it was several years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the challenge we're facing is that online advertising is dominated by two companies, Google and Facebook, which can offer something local right. papers can't. And that's you can target people individually based on their preferences and, and habits uh, papers can't do that, so our ads are simply not as valuable, our mm-hmm. online ads. But there's a coalition of media companies. I'm not sure exactly what they're doing. Are they? Are well, they, there, is there are it- a number of things. That some of them want an antitrust exemption, and I believe our parent company is part of that that would allow them to work in concert and essentially threaten to withhold their news from Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm absent better terms from those companies. I haven't looked at that in detail. Um, I have no sense of what chance that antitrust exemption has legislatively or if it would provide a substantial business boost. I haven't looked at it. I I don't know. But that effort is underway Mm -hmm. by some organizations. And I don't know if that's a practical solution to our issues or not. Uh, What do you think are you seeing individual journalists now the breadth of the types of mediums they're doing. Obviously, you know, I'm going with this as my personal as yes. podcasting. Uh, you see, you know, the times and a lot of these folks are rolling that out or different, you know, things. And so, um, is that something you're expanding here or just your, maybe your personal thoughts on it? Or Yeah. The, they have told us that they do hope to get in podcasts. I, I think that should be obvious mm-hmm. that every organization needs to do that because they've had success. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say real quick, you know, the initial success we've had in another medium was in video. Uh, this isn't business related at all, but Ghosts of Highway 20, Noel Crombie, Beth Nakamura, yeah, Dave Killen, really a sensational um, series of, of episodes on a, a serial killer um, in the Oregon Coast Range who was you know along highway 20 who was whose initial victims were ignored by law enforcement mm-hmm. and it allowed him to continue for many years and kill quite a number of other people uh Noel and Beth and Dave went back through that and explored that and that was sensationally effective in terms of the way they presented it and you know got a, a quite a significant audience that's video is much more labor-intensive yeah. than podcasts. That's one of the beauty of podcasts mm-hmm. is it can be people like you, Dan, with mm-hmm. two mics, a laptop, <laughs> and um, a little more equipment yeah. and put something together that's quite effective. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I, I think we've seen the, the, the Daily is obviously a big success, yeah. but there's all kinds of other things. And I, I, I guess there, from the outside, it looks like there's two models that are succeeding maybe three one is the um sensationally popular individual the bill simmons mark mm-hmm. moran uh yeah uh, model where there's you know one person whose personality is is able to guide it you know a second model might be the nonprofit thing mm-hmm. uh in the dark serial um you know providing in-depth kinds of things and third is kind of brand extension and that's the daily mm-hmm. uh the LA Times with Dirty John mm-hmm. uh where you're you're building on 
uh, an existing brand and finding a way to to link up to that. Mm-hmm. So I those are the three models I see. What what do you see? It's interesting. I think um, you know the the advertising part of it is still pretty much the wild west because it's not yeah. like this mature digital performance marketing where um, the programmatic thing's been really dialed in. There's companies doing that now for podcasting, but it's still it's not really standardized and you know how that works we'll kind of see i i i worry a little bit that we're going to end up in following the the space where we were with you know podcasts are by and large free right now and and that we're going to end up in the same space we were at with online digital news where free doesn't work right but I think it's clear that there are some elements of it that will work. And I, I think, you know, the Bill Simmons type where you have some an individual who has an overwhelming audience yeah. um, or individual topics that are popular that, you know, let's face it, advertising is more compelling when somebody speaks it to you, particularly mm-hmm. if it's the host. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that does work. I think it's clear that there is money out there to support podcasts mm-hmm. in a grant form mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, donations. But we see, would people subscribe to podcasts uh, in terms yeah. of actually paying for them? I think it's got to also be a mix of the brand extension thing, just like the daily. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a view would is really important to look at. This is holistically. How is this supporting the other mediums? So we'll, uh, we'll see. Um, but I think it's every... It's going to happen here, but every reporter should have a podcast and integrate yeah. it. So uh, it's a matter of time. So... Well, Mike, that was a good good session. Yeah, Let's do it again. We can always do do this uh, you know, a few times a year, but I appreciate you coming back on and keep up the great work. Yeah, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for listening to the show. I'm Dan Bruden, and you've been listening to the PDX Executive Podcast. Original music was composed for this episode by Levi Downey. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts 